This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Knives, machetes, saws, and shears. Multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. From the nation's capital, this is the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast with your host, Rob Snowett. Thank you for downloading episode 288 of the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. My name is Rob Snow White. I live in Northern Virginia. I teach people to catch fish they then throw back in the water. And I also host a podcast so people can learn about fly fishing or fish in general that don't live where I live. In this episode, you're going to learn all about redfish, a.k.a. red drum, also known as Poisson Rouge. So I'm outside right now. It is mid-November. It's 73 degrees. I was wearing my Fly in the Flats long-sleeve redfish tee, an homage of Redfish Podcast. It's too warm out here. I had to take it off. Before I get into the meat and potatoes of the podcast, we're going to first check in with Luke and Dan on their Fish All 50 road trip. Please follow them on Instagram at fishall50. Those are all words, not numbers. This podcast episode is brought to you by Traeger Grills. TraegerGrills.com. Fire brings the true flavor of your food to the forefront. Cooking with all-natural hardwood makes your best recipes taste even better. With Traeger's 6-in-1 versatility, you 
can grill, smoke, bake, roast, braise, and barbecue like a true backyard pit boss. Traeger's fire and smoke produces consistent results and perfectly cooked food every single time. If you dry out your turkey at Thanksgiving, you did something wrong. From low and slow to hot and fast, cook it all with ease. Do not accept an oven-cooked turkey this Thanksgiving. Don't accept oven-cooked turkey ever. You are doing it wrong. I implore you, go to TraegerGrills.com, go to your local hardware store, get yourself a Traeger, get yourself a bag of pellets, get yourself some dry rub, get yourself a brine kit. Make that Thanksgiving turkey. Own COVID Thanksgiving. Make everyone as happy as possible by feeding them the best turkey possible. And now it's time to find out just exactly what a redfish sounds like when it makes its namesake sound. Producer Jason, throw us the sound of a redfish right now, would you please? So today is November 10th. Where are Luke and Dan today? We are on our way to Minnesota, driving through Wisconsin. How's the weather right now? Uh, right now, it's not too bad, raining, and it's been warm the past week. Uh, in Minnesota, it's been snowing for three hours already, and it's going to keep snowing for probably the next day. You know, with it being 73 and bluebird skies today in Fairfax County, uh, I'm not going to say I'm, I'm missing the snow right now. Really? You guys are missing some ridiculous November weather. Yeah, we got, I think we got some of it here too. I mean, it's been in the 70s in Wisconsin. Wow. And when we first got here about a week ago, the ice on our, there was ice freezing on our rods while we were fishing and stuff. And it warmed uh, crazily. How's the car camping in the cold? Do the windows freeze at night when your breath condenses? A little bit. After some of the really cold nights, the starts are a little bit shaky, but it hasn't given out on us yet. So. All right. Well, let's catch up with the fishing. So you guys were headed to Ohio. Tell us what you caught there and, and who helped you. In Ohio, we caught a walleye. Well, we caught a couple. And we were helped out, so... We were fishing on our own from piers and stuff, and and then on, so we got there about, I think maybe it was Friday night or something, and then on uh, Monday, we were on the local ABC news station for Toledo, and we got a lot of people reaching out to us then, so some guy who was actually a fly fishing guide in the area reached out and said, you know, um, I fish for walleyes from here sometimes, so if you guys want some someone to fish with. So we went out with him two nights, and it was uncharacteristically warm there as well, which was not great for the walleye fishing offshore. Have much luck. And then on Saturday, to us and said, I have a boat. 
um, and I can and I can take you guys out. So his the guy we went out with on a boat, his name was Daniel Baum, and the guy that we fished with for a couple nights, uh, his name was Hunter Hayes, and he's a local fly fishing guide in Toledo. Nice. I'll send a, a link out. Yeah, uh, Hunter Hunter actually said that he had heard of you or he like knew who you were. So fantastic. Yeah. How did how did the news station find y'all? Uh, my dad, whenever we're nearing a big city, my dad will shoot a couple emails to local reporters and news stations and see if anyone bites. So that's how we've gotten most. So all of our press so far has come off of either my dad emailing someone or someone reading an article that was already written about us. It's pretty awesome. All right. So from Ohio, you crossed into Michigan. Yep. Yeah, so we went to the Upper Peninsula there, and road trout season is closed in, like, 1,500 streams, but there are, like, 200 that were still open, so we, you know, it normally we can get a brook trout in a day, but it took us, especially they had a lot of rain, so the streams were all, like, super flooded and stuff. We eventually ended up finding the Two-Hearted River in the Upper Peninsula, and we got some brook trout there, and then we drove to Wisconsin. And, uh, you know, musky fished from shore for a couple days. I posted in a Facebook group, and we got a guy who took us out on Monday who actually is a walleye guide, but uh, the area that he fishes also holds a lot of musky, and he catches, all, you know, a couple of them uh, every week just fishing for walleye. So we went out. Daniel caught probably about a 40-inch musky with him, and then... We went there. So when we went to Illinois originally, we caught a little pumpkin seed that actually, I, I think it may have been a hybrid because it had the vertical bars, but I didn't check its, the mouth super closely. So we, we then, we had a couple days to kill because we were going out with another guide. So we went down to Illinois, caught a bluegill, which took us 30 minutes, and then went out with another guide for two days. So the first day we didn't catch anything. And then the second day, we got out there, we're using uh, live suckers on these big floats, and we threw, we were putting out six rods. We got two rods in the water, and one of the floats went down. So I reeled that one in, and that was a 33-inch muskie. My goodness. So not a big one, but it still counts. And then probably about 20, 30 minutes later, Daniel caught a 29-inch northern pike. And then we didn't get anything else for the rest of the day until 230 when we were about to pack it up and two floats went down at the exact same time. So then we had two muskies that we were reeling in and we reeled them both in the same net. And so that was a nine inch and a 41 and a half inch. Wow. So that was, that was insane. That was just a crazy experience. And then there was another guy that had reached out the week previously. So even, you know, we, we see if we could get, you know, maybe another one because he, yeah, where there are less of them, but they're bigger. So we didn't have any luck with him. And then Daniel actually had... And I, Daniel, you want to tell him about the phone? Oh, yeah. When we were out musky fishing the first day, I was leaning over the edge of the boat, and my phone happened to fall in. So that was a little mess that we actually just cleared up yesterday. It took about a week and a half to get a new phone. So that, that definitely held us back a couple days. How deep was the water? 
it was only like seven feet, but we were right by a paper mill. So yeah. the currents were super strong coming out of it. And I mean, the second I dropped it, it was gone. I, I was either going to jump in and try and risk my life for it or just let it float away. And I did the latter. Was that the building with the big sort of concrete wall in the background? Yeah, that was it. Yep. Okay. Did the paper mill smell? All right, so where are you heading into Minnesota? Are you guys going to try and find some hot dish, which is like the national food of Minnesota? Now that you mentioned that, we may, but <laughs> yeah, we didn't know that. How's the food situation been? You guys got to eat more because you're, you're both kind of skinny. You're in some cold weather, so is it still ramen? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, ramen and pretzels and cereal, that kind of stuff. Are you guys going to be home for Thanksgiving for a real meal? No, but we're hoping to be at uh, a good friend's house in Texas. So that's our Thanksgiving plan. And then we're hoping to be home by Christmas. But if we don't, then we'll drive home probably like the week before and then go out and finish the you know remaining four or five states of this leg after New Year's. So when you guys are in Texas, I may have to have you go to the HEB grocery store and get me cream of jalapeno and cream of poblano soup cans. All right, we can do that. I might have to, sure. might have, to have you guys throw some of your gear out and make room for cans of soup. So it's yeah. apparently really good for smoked queso dip. That sounds good. Yeah, yeah it sounds really good. So other than phone going over the edge, any other mishaps with gear? Everything still in one piece? Honestly, no. We've been we've been a lot better this trip about taking care of our rods, making making really sure that not can't can't get tight on this early in the leg. Yeah. Fantastic. All right. Well, we'll catch up with you guys uh, in a week or so. Stay warm, have fun, and also, what are your your peers doing right now that can't go to college? Are they just sitting at home? They're at home doing online school. Some of them are still at college, but they're about to be home for like two months because what most schools are doing is they're going home for Thanksgiving break, and then they're just staying until like mid-January and then going back, supposedly. My goodness. All right, guys. Well, have fun. Be safe and keep your doors locked at night. Absolutely. All right. Good talking to you. Right on, guys. Thanks. We're going to start a little bit of this podcast with some history about Chef Paul Perdome. If you grew up like me in the late 70s, early 80s, you may have thought that actor Dom DeLuise was Paul Perdome. They looked the same. Paul Perdome was a heavyset gentleman, used a scooter when he cooked on his TV show. I would highly suggest you go to the grocery store and look for his dry rubs, blackened chicken, meat magic, chicken magic. They're phenomenal. So this is from the LA Times by Michael Kennedy, August 11, 1986. So I was nine years old. And this is a little bit of what I could find from this article, taking some things in and out. The last thing he wants is to be linked with the decline of the fish. The notion that he, a redfish fan, was somehow responsible. He had already received some letters accusing him of just that, and it was troubling. 
All he had done was invented blackened redfish, a dish that led to a national craze. That sent demand soaring, which led to the worry about overfishing and finally to a federal limit on catches and the accompanying fur. There was no way he could have predicted the mania over blackened redfish. The phenomenon of trendy restaurants from New York to California serving it up, the fame that came with being the first to cook a piece of spiced up fish in a white hot iron skillet. He did it back in 1981 only because he couldn't afford a wood burning grill for his Cajun restaurant's kitchen. Yet it happened. Commercial fishermen jumped at the chance to make big money on the Cajun food craze. They fished the deeper waters for bigger bull redfish that only a few years earlier would have been thrown back as inedible, too coarse, too fishy tasting, a junk fish, they called it. But what did those New Yorkers know about redfish? They didn't say they wanted small, tender redfish. But what did those New Yorkers know about redfish? They didn't say they wanted small, tender redfish, the fish that have long been a staple of New Orleans cuisine and the only kind Perdome uses. They wanted any kind of redfish they could get their hands on. So the fishermen scooped up redfish in huge purse seine nets. Figures tell the story. In 1980, the year before Prudhomme put a fish to skillet, the commercial redfish catch in the Gulf of Mexico was 1.6 million pounds. Last year, it was 6.3 million pounds. This year, another 7 million pounds had been caught by June 1st, and some predictions were that the 1986 catch could have gone as high as 20 million pounds had not the federal government stepped in. A federal limit on catch. The Secretary of Commerce placed a million pound quota on redfish for 90 days, beginning last June 26th, after Representative John Bro, Democrat of Louisiana, complained about the size of the redfish catch and introduced a bill in Congress calling for a moratorium on the fishing for them. But here again is another example of the demand. The 90-day quota was filled in 10 days. What I'm going to cover today in this podcast about redfish. Let me start off with, again, new vocabulary terms, some taxonomic classifications, physical descriptions, geographic distribution, feeding and diet, reproduction, and then some random odds and ends. This was all from non-fly fishing and non-fishing sources. I didn't go to fishing blogs. I didn't look at fishing charters. Wasn't looking at fly fishing websites where captains and anglers describe the fish and how to catch them and everything else. This information may be redundant and or conflicting with other data in the actual podcast based on data where the information was sourced. So I've gone through extensive research papers, typed and scanned, websites, scientific literature, everything to procure all this information into a consolidated list of everything you need to know about redfish except how to catch them. I'll start off with vocabulary. The first word I'm going to introduce is demersal, D-E-M-E-R-S-A-L. They're known as demersal fish, also known as ground fish. They live and feed on or near the bottom of seas or lakes. These fish occupy the sea floors and lake beds, which usually consist of mud, sand, gravel, or rocks. The next term is oceanodromus, migratory fish like an anadromous or ketadromous fish. Unlike anadromous fish or ketadromous fish, 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Oceanodromus fish spends its whole life in salt water. Many Oceanodromus fishes are termed highly migratory species because of their ocean basin size migration routes. Think about giant bluefin tunas that go all the way across the Atlantic into the Mediterranean to spawn and then back out into the Atlantic. Third, new vocabulary term for you today. The quiz will be in 45 minutes. Urihaline, Uri, E-U-R-Y, means broad or wide. Haline is salt. Thus, urihaline organisms are able to adapt to a wide range of salinities. An example of a urihaline fish is the molly, which can live in fresh water, brackish water, or salt water. And the last of your vocabulary terminology today is oscillated. Having eye-like markings, oscillated. Taxonomy, redfish are in the kingdom Animalia, phylum Chordata, class Actinopterygii, rayfin fishes. Order, Persiformes, perch-like fishes. Family, Cyanaeidae, drums or croakers. Genus Cyanops. Species, Oscillatus. The binomial name for redfish is Cyanops Oscillatus, Linnaeus 1766. So thus the binomial name, bi means two, nomials name, binomial nomenclature of this organism is Cyanops Oscillatus. Cyanops is Greek for a fish, red mullet, ops plus the appearance of. Oscillatus means eye-like color spot. Cyanops means shade appearance. So the species name Oscillatus means eye-like spot referring to the black spots in the tail. The Cyanaeidae family has approximately 275 species with 70 genera. They are the largest members of the drum family. The redfish are. That's what I'm talking about. Redfish are the only species in the genus Cyanops. The red drum is related to the black drum, Pagonius chromis. And the two species are often found near to each other. They can interbreed and form a robust hybrid and younger fish are often indistinguishable in flavor. I could not find any scientific documentation about the hybridization of these two species, and I could only find one picture on the internets. So we're going to have to wait till Napoleon Dynamite 2 for his hybrid animals favorites. The red drum was originally named Perca ocelata by Linnaeus in 1776 as a perch-like fish. 1776. The name was later changed to Cyanops ocellata, and then to the currently valid name Cyanops ocellatus, again, Linnaeus 1776. 1776. The red drum has been referred to in past scientific literature by the synonym Lutigenus triangulum lecipede in 1882. It's no concern for you, however, because... We only go by the common name of current binomial nomenclature. So now you know a little history of them, how they are named based on their description. Let's talk about their physical 
attributes. How can you tell a redfish from other fish in the water? The key identifying characteristic, the red drum has a characteristic eye spot near the tail and is somewhat streamlined. It is the only cyanid with large spots. At maturity, these fish will go from 55 to 80.3 centimeters. Their maximum length is 155 centimeters. Their common length is 100 centimeters. Large red drum that is longer than 30 inches in length are commonly described as bull reds, even though many of the larger fish are actually females. The red drum experiences sexual dimorphism in which the female is typically larger than the male. The sex attributes of the male and female may sometimes be difficult to distinguish. But during the spawning season, right now, when people are trying to catch them, if you really want to tell the type of species and the sex of that species of the redfish, this is how you do it. You ready? The male is going to have two ventral openings near the anal fin, one opening in the urogenital papilla and the other in the anus. Now, the female, if you're going to expect her, has three ventral openings near the anal fin, the urinary opening and the oviduct and the anus. There you have it, folks. If you're trying to find out the difference between a male redfish and a female redfish, you've been wondering your whole life, that's how you're going to do it. So now when somebody posts a redfish picture to Instagram, you can ask them if they looked. Smaller red drum, that is up to 20 inches in length, are often called rat reds. The term puppy drum is for smaller fish with no length derivation. So puppy drum and rats can be the same until the 20-inch mark. Due to their unusual growth pattern, a 36-inch red drum may be anywhere from 6 to 50 years old. So the same length fish could be anywhere from 44 years apart, which is absolutely just crazy. Redfish is a fast-growing fish, approximately 11 inches and 1 pound in the first year, 17 to 22 inches and 3.5 pounds in two years, and 22 to 24 inches and 6 to 8 pounds are put on in three years. The maximum published weight is 45 kilograms or 90 pounds, depending on the source. The max reported age is 37 or 50 or 60 years, depending on your source. And of course, to age these fish, you're going to use an otolith, which is the growth bone in the ear that has growth rings similar to a tree. In 1984, a Virginia man caught the 59-inch, 94.2-pound world record red drum off Hatteras Island off the coast of North Carolina. A three-year-old fish typically weighs six to eight pounds, and red drum increase in weight exponentially as they grow larger. Seasonal changes in the growth are reflected in the density of the otolith bones and scales of red drum, much in the same manner as rings reflect seasonal growth patterns in trees. The most common color of a redfish is bronze, reddish bronze. The color depends largely on the water the fish come from. The color of red drum ranges from a deep blackish coppery color to a nearly silver color. Red drum taken in brackish or low salinity water have a dark copper color, whereas individuals taken in the surf are more silvery. Many redfishes change color to blend in with their surroundings. 
If Red Drum remained dark when they moved from the rivers to the ocean, they'd be easier to see against the white sandy bottom of the coast than if their colors became lighter and more silvery. Dark red color on the back fades into white on the belly. And where the bottom is muddy and the water is brackish, Red Drum have a dark copper color. Fish living in surf areas and areas with higher salinity water and sandy bottoms are lighter colored and may even be silvery or silvery pink. During the spawning season, which is right now, the fins take on an orange color. Redfish have a lightly arched back with a sloping head. The head is conical in shape and pores are present on the head, five on the chin, 10 on the snout. This fish uses its powerful jaws to break through hard shell prey. Shape of the head has to do with how they feed just like birds. They have a cone-shaped snout with an inferior horizontal mouth, shaped like a vacuum cleaner. There are bands of teeth. Look up redfish teeth. You've got to peel back the gums. I was talking to Taylor about them. She said they're there, but you don't really see them. Google redfish teeth. You're going to be very surprised at what you see. I didn't know they had teeth like that. Remember, I've only encountered one real redfish in my life when I was with David. They have... A blunt snout with a large subterminal mouth similar to most species in the Cyanae family. Size of the mouth may regulate the size of their preferred prey. The red drum can be distinguished from the closely related black drum, Pagonius chromis, by its lack of barbells. And I consider a large black drum one of the grossest looking organisms there are. I have no interest in catching that fish. I find them hideous. Just putting that out there. Redfish have large scales. Their scales, if you want to go by shape of scale, is tenoid. C-T-E-N-O-I-D. The C is silent, like in Nidaria. Tenoid scales. The scales have a jagged edge to them. The scales have a darker center, forming poorly defined lines on its body. The red drum uses its powerful pharyngeal teeth in the back of its jaw to crush oysters and other shellfish. And the red drum uses its senses of sight and touch and its downward turned mouth to locate forage on the bottom through vacuuming or biting. The dorsal fin has two sections. A spiny fin at front separated by a deep notch from the soft dorsal fin. A deep notch separates the spinous portion of the dorsal fin from the soft dorsal fin. There are two dorsal fins thus. This is getting redundant, but the first of which has 10 hard spines and the second with one hard spine and numerous soft rays. What is the purpose of that one hard spine? Well, if you've ever bitten into a tortilla chip and the corner of that chip pokes the roof of your mouth, you spit it out. So when something bites down on that, it's going to poke them. Look up YouTube. You're going to do a Wobegong or Angel Shark and Horn Shark and watch as the Wobegong or Angel or Guitar sits in the sand and a Shark goes by with a horn on it, and it bites down on it, and it immediately spits it out. There are more videos of that that I saw growing up as a kid than uh, most other shark encounters. The predorsal region is not extremely elevated, as on other drum species, and the caudal fin is slightly concave. The tails of young fish, less than about 18 inches, may be bluish. Do we need to go down to Lawn Guy's house and tell him to stop? leaf blowing that's like three days in a row if you can hear that let's talk about the spots that key defining characteristic of the redfish not just the color 
but they're spot, and they range in a variety. People always post pictures of heart-shaped spots. The most distinguishing mark on the red drum is one large, oscillated spot located just ahead of the tail fin. Black spot on the upper part of the tail base. So multiple spots are not uncommon for this fish. Having no spots is extremely rare. As the fish, with multiple spots grow older, they seem to lose their excess spots. Scientists believe that the black spot near the tail helps fool predators into starting their attack at the drum's tail instead of the head, allowing the red drum to escape. Now, their tail's not going to fall off like it would a lizard, but it definitely is going to put it where there are no major organs and it's not going to cause too much trauma. All right, back to recording now that long guy's done leaf blowing for the meantime. Mike, who spends three days straight leaf blowing, spends their entire weekends mowing their lawn, raking their lawn, collecting the weeds, on their knees pulling the weeds, mowing it, perforating it, but never goes outside to actually enjoy their lawn. That's lawn guy. So we're going to try this again. Let's do geographic distribution. The places where you're going to find these fishes. I had to pause again because a lawn guy, and then they're emptying a porta potty across the street where there's construction, so I had to go in because of the smell. Let's try this again. Distribution. Where are you going to find a redfish? Well, those terminologies from the beginning of the podcast, we're going to say these fish are marine, urihaline, brackish, demersal, and oceanodromous. Again, they're marine, urihaline, brackish, demersal, and oceanodromous. Redfish are very tolerant of water temperature variations, as well as salinity levels so it ranges in a wide variety of habitats from surf zones and seagrass beds to estuaries and river mouths. Although they've been known to travel into fresh waters as well into very high saline waters, up to 50 parts per trillion, adults usually stay in salt water of 30 to 35 parts per trillion. Redfish can live in low salinity or even freshwater estuaries out to offshore waters at least 50 feet deep. You might need to have a fast sinking line there. Younger fish prefer lower salinity of inshore waters, while the older fish prefer highly saline waters found offshore. Red drum can be successfully acclimated to freshwater, and they can tolerate a wide range of temperatures, anywhere from 39 to 93 degrees Fahrenheit, and they can survive water temperatures from 36 to nearly 100 degrees Fahrenheit. However, rapid temperature changes may be fatal. Their geographic distribution can be considered the Western Atlantic, and these are going to be from several sources. So if there again is redundancy, don't blame the messenger. Redfish are distributed along the Atlantic and Gulf Coast of Mexico, from Cape Cod, Massachusetts to Tuxpan, Mexico, or Tushpan. I've never been there, so I can't pronounce it. Massachusetts in the USA to northern Mexico, including southern Florida. They have been found in Maine, and the species has become uncommon north of New Jersey. Mature female red drum are seldom found in Mississippi waters north of the barrier islands. Red drum are more abundant in the Gulf of Mexico than along the Atlantic coast. They occur in the Chesapeake Bay from May through November and are most abundant near the bay mouth in salinities above 15 parts per thousand. My neighbor Eric has been catching them on bait out at the mouth of the Patuxent River near Solomon's Island in the last couple of weeks. Redfish naturally occur 
along the eastern and southern Atlantic and Gulf of Mexico coasts of Louisiana, Texas, Alabama, Mississippi, Florida, Georgia, the Carolinas, and of course, Virginia. They're introduced throughout the world from Israel, Singapore, the Bahamas, Ecuador, Martinique, and several other locations. Redfish have even been reported as an exotic species in waters off Hong Kong, China. So those fish may have come from offspring of fish that were sent to Taiwan as aquaculture research animals. They were introduced to Ecuador for farming in 1974, where they escaped into the wild. They should have been using those ones for black and red fish, right? Instead of the ones off the Gulf Coast. Drums can be observed solitary or exhibiting schooling behavior. They have been known to school with other species, including black drum and tarpon. Redfish occupy a wide range of habitats, including estuaries, river mouths, bays, sandy bottoms, mud flats, seagrass beds, oyster bottoms, surf zones, and continental shelf waters. They occur usually over sand and sandy mud bottoms in coastal waters and estuaries. That's the term demersal. They're abundant in the surf zone. They prefer soft bottoms. Does that have to do with feeding? Most likely. And around these types of structures, they're found throughout the water column. There's little evidence, there's little evidence of seasonal migrations. Anglers find concentrations of red drums in rivers and tidal creeks during the winter. And the daily movement from the shallows to deeper waters is influenced by tides and water temperatures. The threat of predation and food abundance will influence where they're located in the water column. Large schools of large red drum will congregate at nearshore artificial reefs and oil and gas platforms in the northern Gulf of Mexico. Immature red drum prefer grass marsh areas of bays and estuaries when available. And juvenile redfish are an inshore species till they reach roughly 30 inches, which is typically four years. They then migrate to the nearshore population. Young red drums inhabit mainly estuaries, river mouths, and shallow coastal waters until age three or four. Then they leave the protection of the estuaries, moving into open coastal waters. Both younger mature red drum, three to six years of age, and bull red drum prefer rocky outcroppings, including jetties and man-made structures such as those oil rigs mentioned above and bridge posts. Older juveniles and sub-adults move to more open water over sand, mud, and seagrasses, and move into shallower water to feed on rising tides. For the first three years of their lives, red drum live in the bays or in the surf zones. As they mature, they move from the bays to the Gulf of Mexico, where they remain the rest of their lives, except for infrequent visits to the bays. They will visit the lower Chesapeake Bay from spring through autumn. Young of the year appear on the Chesapeake Bay in August to September, and move into shallow, fresher waters. During the fall, especially during winter stormy weather, large adult red drum move to the Gulf beaches, possibly for spawning, where they can be caught from piers and by surf anglers. This is known as bull redfish run. In one study from January through March, when the water was coldest, near 50 degrees Fahrenheit, very few red drum juveniles were found in shallow creeks. 
the only places they consistently found juvenile red drum during winter is in the main channels of the rivers at depths of 30 to 50 feet and salinities that are one-half to two-thirds that of seawater. In spring, when the water's warm, juveniles move back into the shallow creeks and were most abundant in late spring. And now we're going to have a Huey fly over us. A life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. 6-8 Western. Oh, I'll mule there, baby. Right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. It's most likely a U.S. Park Police helicopter, as they really are the only ones that still utilize the Huey helicopter in the D.C. metro area. And if you want more on D.C. helicopters, there's a Twitter for it now. I believe it's just D.C. helicopters. There's a lot of helicopters flying over right now analyzing air quality for potential radiation threats leading up to and upon the inauguration. This one seems to be following the Little River Turnpike Corridor. I had some recent clients that were going to move here. I may have mentioned this to Art in that last podcast. And they were going to live down by Pentagon Row, where they're building the new Amazon HQ. And they were very concerned by the amount of helicopters flying over this area. I said, get used to it. It is nonstop. All right, keep going. <laughs> so speaking of redfish, when we get a drought like we are right now, they'll come up the Potomac River, and you can find them in the tidal creeks and estuaries. We were up one of the creeks on Sunday. The family, my wife, Hooked a bunch of fish and lost them. That's my fault. She was doing a, throwing a one weight with no, uh, no drag on the reel. So setting the hook was a little awkward for her. Loads of yellow perch, but no redfish. Right, I think that is successfully far enough that I can. In Florida, in winter, redfish are found in seagrass over muddy or sand bottoms or near oyster bars or spring-fed creeks. I'm going to read that one again in case you're a Floridian. In Florida in winter, redfish are found in seagrass over muddy or sand bottoms near oyster bars or spring-fed creeks. I find that very interesting. What is it about the spring-fed creek that they like so much? During winter, they're relatively inactive. Redfish will eat very little, and they don't grow. In extreme winters, they may actually decrease in weight. At the northern edge of its distribution, severe winters may cause considerable overwinter loss and size-selective mortality among juveniles. Many studies have noted decreased food availability in winter, causing fish to exhaust energy reserves and starve. However, at extreme cold temperatures, the depletion of energy stores may no longer determine survival. Rather, acute thermal stress can disrupt osmoregulatory function and be the primary cause of death. So going back to the largemouth bass podcast of two or three years ago, we don't target largemouth bass in the winter because of their energy reserves are used to maybe feed two or three times over winter and sit motionless. And when you catch them, all that energy stored up for being stationary and for digestion has now been used up and you're going to kill the fish. 
So all those people pulling out huge largemouth and Berkeley go over the winter, congratulations, you just killed our fish. If you did choose to listen to this podcast episode, not just to learn more about redfish, but how to catch them, you've so far learned where they're going to be. And now we're going to go into what they're doing there, what they're eating. And if you're going to take something away from this, this should be the most influential section, which is going to be feeding your goal, if you are going to catch a fish, is to put something in front of that fish to fool it into making it eat it, and then you stick a hook through their mouth. So you need to find out what is best to throw, where, and when. So this is going to go over what they feed on, when they feed on it, where they feed on it. The rest is up to you. So red drum are an aggressive and opportunistic feeder. And the result is evident in that excessive growth rate. They feed both in daylight and in the evening hours. The juveniles eat zooplankton and small invertebrates. Juvenile fish gradually shift to copepods, shrimps, marine worms, small crabs, and fish as they mature. The larger you are, the more calories you need to intake. Adult red drum are aggressive and opportunistic, and they take a variety of prey. The seasonality of their diet probably primarily reflects availability of the specific organisms, but some selectivity is also apparent. Fishes are apparently more important to the diet during the winter and spring months, while a changeover to crabs is observed in the summer and fall. Think about why they might be interested in the fish that I will mention soon. It mostly is going to have to do with the lipids in their bodies, the fatty fishes. Fat is what you want over winter to sustain your body. Long-term, slow source of energy. Strong seasonal patterns are closely linked to temporal changes in prey availability. Single prey species can dominate red drum diets during periods of high abundance. Drum might continually migrate in a relatively consistent pattern in order to optimize specific rich food sources. Thus, fish would exploit different areas seasonally. Young red drum feed on small crab, shrimp, marine worms. As the drum reaches lengths above 200 millimeters, that diet is going to shift to incorporate small bony fishes. Mature fish feed on larger crabs, shrimps, small fish, and sometimes their cousins, the Atlantic croaker. Adult drums also feed on large-scale crustaceans, such as blue crabs. The foods of the large sub-adult and adult red drum are mainly fishes and crabs. Fishes are about one half of the food item eaten and make up over three quarters of the total volume. Ding, ding, ding. Atlantic Menhaden and Spot are the preferred food. Menhaden, super oily fish, which is why they've been completely, almost entirely eliminated for the Chesapeake Bay and Atlantic Ocean. Very few mud minnows and striped mullet are eaten. This makes sense because mud minnows and striped mullet are mainly found in shallow waters around marshes, whereas spot and Atlantic menhaden are abundant in coastal waters where large fish are found. Red fish are generally bottom feeders, and most of what it consumes are bottom living species. They will feed in the water column when the opportunity arises. One very specific behavior to redfish is known as tailing. Tailing occurs when the red drum 
feed in shallow water with their head down in the grass and the tail exposed to the air. They also feed relatively deep inshore water in depressions behind sandbars or channels adjacent to mud or grass flats. In deeper water, red drum often lie in depressions behind the sandbars or troughs where they wait for tidal currents to push prey toward them. Along marsh edges, red drum can sometimes be detected as they move along the marsh grasses cause them to move. We see that here with snakeheads and carp all the time in the spatter dock. The shallow water feeding behaviors of red drum make them particularly interesting as game fish. They feed mainly on benthic or bottom crustaceans, benthic mollusks, and fishes. Larger fish will feed heavily on surface schools of fish. Think about all those movies you see with funk music playing at the F3T with redfish chasing down poppers. It's always like, that's my beatboxing. That's why I'm not a beatboxer. I'm a fishing guy. The smallest red drum feed mainly on small shrimp-like organisms called possum shrimps. Juveniles, two to three inches long, feed mainly on grass shrimps and small fishes. Red drum around seven inches in length eat small mud crabs. And during winter and spring, the diet consists primarily of fish. During the summer and fall, more crabs and shrimp are eaten. If you want to know all the fish that have been found inside of the gut of a redfish, I have a list for you. And yes, it's alphabetized. We're going to go from A to S. We're going to start with the anchovy, Atlantic croaker, bay anchovy, black-cheeked tonguefish, clown goby, flathead gray mullet, Florida pompano, flounder, hog choker, least puffer, lizardfish, menhaden, midshipman, mud minnows, mullet, oyster toadfish, pigfish, pinfish, rough silverside, sea robins, sheep's head minnows, shrimp eels, southern flounder, southern kingfish, spot, and striped killifish. If you are going to be throwing a baitfish pattern, those are what you should be throwing. If you're going to throw a Drew Chacon crab or a not the real world crab, you might want to imitate something like this. Chesapeake blue crab, lesser blue crab or dwarf crab, calico crab, also known as the Dolly Varden crab, the lady crab, the xanthid crab, long-wristed hermit crabs, iridescent swimming crabs, fiddler crabs, which Peter Mwangi ate live at our trip senior year of high school to Wallops Island. If you've never seen someone eat a live fiddler crab before, I don't suggest someone does it. Peter, I don't know what you were thinking. And finally, the mud crab. They also eat polychaete marine worms. Next up are shrimps. There's a variety of shrimp flies out there. There's so many flies for redfish. And here are what you should imitate with your shrimp patterns. Pinead shrimp, brown, white, and pink shrimp. Palomonid shrimps, grass shrimps, estuarine snapping shrimps, and Ohio or river shrimps. They also eat bryozoans. The mollusks that they eat include Atlantic mud pittock, the false angel pittock, the white baby ear or predatory sea snail. The echinoderms include sand dollars and hairy sea cucumbers. 
They also eat stromatopods, amphipods, other decapods, algae, detritus, and some miscellaneous things have been known to show up in their guts, including small nutria, snakes, turtles, and ducklings. Additionally, scientists have found sea enemies and oyster shell pieces in redfish guts. Redfish also get fed upon by other organisms. Bottlenose dolphins are the primary predators of red drum and may take even the largest adult fish. Humans, birds, specifically ospreys, larger fish, turtles, at least 30 organisms have been found on or in wild populations of red drum. So they're not just fed upon the outside, things eat them from the inside. Red drum are subject to a variety of external and internal parasites, none of which pose a threat to humans. Common external parasites of red drum include several species that resemble small streamers attached to the fish by one end. External parasites generally do no harm to the fish unless they occur on the gills in sufficient numbers to impair respiration. And that concludes my research on what redfish eat and how they do it. Don't forget to look up redfish teeth. We're going to finish up the main part of this podcast now with reproduction. It has nothing really to do with how you're going to catch fish. If you want a well-rounded education of this fish, I'm going to include everything. And that includes where they come from and how they're born. Redfish are known as prodigious spawners that produce tens of millions of eggs. There is no parental involvement. The red drum is polygonadromous, likely having many partners throughout the mating season. They spawn during late summer and fall, which occurs near estuary inlets and passes along barrier island beaches. The generalized reproductive cycle for red drum can be divided into offshore and inshore segments, with spawning and larval development generally believed to occur offshore. Water temperatures, sea level, the number of cold fronts, the amount of river discharge and salinity are known to affect your class success. Other suspected influences are the right tide combination to bring the redfish larva, that's baby fish, inshore, the right food for the larvae and the juveniles, the level of competition for the food, and possibly even the amount of predation on the young fish by other animals. No, read that. Looking to hear and talk. No, I'm podcasting. What time? Who? Just, just, just read that line. Adult drums travel back into uh, estuaries. Estuaries and shallow waters to spawn. Estuaries are the nursery grounds for red drum. I'm sorry. In the southern part of the hemisphere, you are going to have them in mangroves. In the northern part of their distribution, they will occupy salt marshes. Redfish spawn in highly saline waters in areas of high tidal current flow. Larvae have not been found more than 12 miles from the beach, nor have they been reported from the bays. Spawning season is from mid-August through mid-October in gulf waters near the mouths of passes and shorelines. Spawning usually takes place over an eight or nine week period, and in eastern Florida, spawning occurs during the fall when daylight hours begin to shorten and water temperatures begin to cool. On Florida's Gulf Coast, 
Spawning begins in September, peaking in October. And in the northern Gulf of Mexico, red drums spawn from August through December. In Alabama, spawning occurs from mid-August through December, while in Mississippi, spawning occurs from September through November. Florida spawning season is from about August through December in passes, inlets, and lagoon estuaries all around the state. During spawning season, redfish use special muscles rubbing against their air bladder to produce a drumming sound for which they are named after. Males also change colors from a lighter hue of red to dark red above their underbelly, which stays white. The males produce a knocking or drumming sound using muscular contractions to vibrate the swim bladder to attract the female. Drumming activity increases at dusk. Sound travels faster in water and doesn't require ambient light. And spawning takes place during the night. However, vision is useful as the dot patterns on another red drum assists with intraspecies recognition. The females are attracted to the drumming noise and they swim towards the males. The males nudge the female with its head, causing eggs to be released by that female, then externally fertilized by the male. The croaking noise also can be heard when the fish is under extreme stress, such as being pulled out of the water by you. The red drum also communicates while spawning by physical contact with the female through a series of bumps and nudges. Male red drums stake out in large numbers their prime spawning areas in and near the passes, being ready to spawn virtually every single night. There, they form large schools called drumming aggregations because of the drumming sound that they make with their air bladders to attract the female. Females, on the other hand, tend to appear at these areas only when immediately ready to spawn, which seems to be about once every two to seven days. Following their first spawn, Red drums spend less time in the estuaries and more time in ocean waters, most likely to put on more food weight. You put on more mass, the fecundity of your species and the individual goes up. About half a red drum are able to reproduce by age four, when they are 660 to 700 millimeters long and 3.4 to 4 kilograms in weight. Once mature, Redfish typically will spawn for the rest of their lives. Males mature at one to two years old, while females mature at three to four years old. Adults mature by three to five years of age. The approximate length of maturity of the male is 28 inches, while the approximate length of females at maturity is 33 inches. Let's talk about eggs now. Large females can produce two million eggs per season at an average of one and a half million eggs per spawn, with a range of 200,000 up to more than three million. And spawning every two to four days, the average female can be expected to produce, drum roll please, 20 to 40 million eggs per season. In the first year, young red drum in Texas estuaries grew about 0.6 millimeters per day though the rates varied with location and year and were higher in more southerly estuaries. Fertilized red drum eggs are spherical and approximately one millimeter in diameter. They are clear and contain tiny oil droplets, which provide flotation and nourishment for the larva. 
in addition to that provided by the yolk sac. Eggs of red drum float when the salinity is above 25 parts per trillion, but sink at a salinity below 20 parts per trillion, likely reducing egg survival in low saline waters. The eggs are carried through the island passes and inshore by tides and currents. The eggs incubate for 24 hours and hatch after about a day. Eggs hatch at approximately 28 to 30 hours after spawning, resulting in larvae that are about 6 to 8 millimeters standard in length. At this point, the dorsal and caudal fin folds are continuous with the well-developed caudal fin, and the pelvic and pectoral fins are underdeveloped. Many brown chromatophores are present at the bases of the anal fin and the dorsal fin. Next up are the larval stages. When first hatched, larval red drum are a standard length of 6 to 8 millimeters. Temperature and salinity affect the rate of larval development. Larvae are transported into estuaries and tidal bays via currents before settling into the seagrass beds. There's such a parallel with every one of these life histories I have done about what happens to the eggs and where they go. The larvae live off their attached gilk sac for about three days and then begin to feed on plankton. They remain in the water column for about 20 days. Larval red drum use vertical migrations to ride high salinity tidal currents into tidal creeks and shallow salt marsh nursery habitats. At the end of the first year, they may be 271 to 383 millimeters in length. Juveniles differ from adults in that the tail fin is pointed in juveniles and slightly concave in adults. Chromatophores are now present on the head and along the length of the body. Scales and teeth have now developed, and the body color becomes silvery with a row of five to seven blotches of heavy pigment along the lateral line. Large black blotches are evident on the sides and back of juveniles at about four inches, but most of these disappear when the fish reaches about six inches in length. They spend approximately 20 days in the water column before becoming demersal. Juveniles and subadults typically stay in bays and estuaries until age three to four at which time they leave the estuary and join mature adults in the coastal waters. Males and females show similar growth and size patterns, and the growth rates vary with location. Gulf Coast fish typically grow faster than fish in other locations. Now I'm going to talk about the economic importance of redfish. They are highly prized game fish in the Gulf of Mexico. They are successfully aquacultured for both the market and stock enhancement. Their tolerance for variations in temperature and salinity contribute to successful aquaculture. A limited number of red drum are removed from the wild to promote genetic diversity in hatchery-bred red drum. Aquaculture for human consumption activities involving them occurs around the world, though from my reading, most of it is done in Texas, or only in Texas in the U.S. From 1980 through 1988, Commercial fishermen took an average of 28% of the redfish, while sport fishermen harvested 72%. Catch limits and size restrictions have increased the average weight of redfish caught in Louisiana's coastal waters. 
Restrictions on both sport and commercial fishermen allowed the species to rebuild. States actively vary the recreational catch limits and minimum and maximum lengths to help sustain red drum populations. Executive Order 13449 of October 20, 2007, issued by President George W. Bush, designated the red drum as a protected game fish. The order prohibits sale of red drum caught in federal waters and encourages states to consider designating red drum as protected game fish within state waters. He also created that massive, not biosphere, but preserve off of Hawaii. W did some good for the fish before he left office. While they may no longer be commercially harvested in the U.S. federal waters or in most state waters, they are readily caught and still enjoyed as table fare by many. Farm-raised redfish are still available as commercial product. Only from Texas, question mark, is my notes. And commercial netting disappeared after coastal states, such as Florida, declared red drum prohibited for sale. Recreational size and bag limits have been highly effective, allowing daily limits to be increased in recent years. Now for the miscellaneous. Red drums pose no danger to humans. Juvenile red drums are the intermediate host for Contrasecum multipapillatum, a nematode. The parasite infects the kidneys while waiting for maturation until it resides in the definitive host, a bird. Red drums can become infected internally with other parasites in the intestines, stomach, muscle, liver, and the heart. Specimens have been reported with external parasites on the gills, skin scales, and fins. Red drums have also been documented with benign tumors. And the last thing I'm going to read is that prior to 1977, the recreational fishery for redfish was unregulated. And that is everything I think you need to know about redfish. If you want to learn more about redfish, send me an email. I will send you a copy of my notes, which has a list of references in it. Thank you so much for downloading this podcast. Please share it with your friends. Please give me some love on iTunes. Give me some rankings. Give me five stars, if you will. Give me four stars if you don't think I deserve five. I'll take what I can get. Please visit my website, robsnowwhite.com, for flies and other things. And be sure to visit TraegerGrills.com to get a Traeger before Thanksgiving. If you eat an oven-made turkey... I'm going to hear about it, and I'm not going to like it. Jason, do your thing. Thank you for joining us for the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. For more information or to contact Rob, please go to www.robsnowwhite.com. is brought to you by Freestone Productions at freestoneproductions.com. Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue, brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors, every Monday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. 
brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV. On Mondays, head offshore with Captain Scott Walker and Steve Roger for breathtaking deep sea adventures. Coming to me, coming to me, coming to me. Double. He's jumping, he's jumping, he's jumping. Oh! Oh! Look at that belly. Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue. Brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern. Tell a few fish stories along the way. On Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. 